Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, to Luke chapter 12, and you'll find your place in verse 13. It's my intention this morning to work to the end of the chapter. Let me say a few words first of introduction. This morning, what I want you to see is the importance of investing in light of eternity. Investing your resources, investing your efforts, your energy, your whole person in light of what Christ has done and what He will surely do. Now, there's a classic example of bad investing that they often use in in schools to teach people what not to do. And it's an illustration of something called the greater fool theory. And the classic example was a time in history when there was a craze around tulips. And the price of tulips kept going up for no reason except that the price of tulips kept going up. And it developed a kind of mania where everybody had to get tulips, not because they wanted the tulips for themselves, but because they believed that the price would keep rocketing up and up and up. And if they could get in and get out, they'd have more money than which they began with. No one actually wanted the tulips. What they wanted was more of the money that they already had. And what happened, of course, was at the end of that mania was the people who were left holding the bag when it all came crashing down lost everything. They were the greatest fools. And it's a lesson learned that the way to avoid being the greatest fool is not to be any one of the fools in the first place. But the wise investors never would have purchased the tulips, even though some people were getting rich quick by investing their money in these flowers that had very little value. In the same way, we see these kinds of manias develop in our own culture, in our own time. We see crazes develop around things that seem to have no intrinsic value of their own, but people believe that the price will keep going up and up and up, and eventually if they get in and get out at the right time, they will make it rich, quick, and easy. And All along, they're seeking not to be the greatest fool. Well, in the text before us, essentially what I intend to do this morning is to preach a sermon that Jesus preached, expositing simply what He preached, where He teaches us how not to be the greatest fool when it comes to this life. In fact, how He teaches us not to be a fool at all by calling us to invest in that which cannot fail, considering the certainty of Christ's first and second coming, and considering the certainty of God's goodness and provision. He calls us to invest our life, our resources, everything we have to go all in, in light of these realities, for the kingdom of God. And yet there are threats that we're going to see in this text that would threaten us, that would challenge us to adopt this perspective, those three threats being covetousness, which motivates us to invest in the wrong things, and anxiety or fear, which would dissuade us from investing in the right things. And thirdly, complacency, which will leave us missing the opportunity that we have to invest in that which will last. But the solution that Jesus will give us is in learning to be wise, learning wisdom. And so he uses the forms of wisdom in this passage to instruct us, contrasting fools with those who are wise, using parables and proverbs and beatitudes, drawing lessons by observing nature and the created world, and showing us how true wisdom ultimately leads to real justice and righteousness. So if we'll learn wisdom from Him well, then we'll learn how we might invest in that which can never fail. So if you found your place, then would you follow along with me in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. 
We'll read at the end of the chapter. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Ma'am, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. 
And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer. The officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you are paid the very last penny. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that you would give us wisdom now. For we know that the wisdom that we are taught by your Son is a wisdom that we can only receive if you so work in our hearts by your Spirit to give us understanding, to understand His words, to give us wisdom to wisely interpret them and to apply them in our lives so that we might indeed, Lord, be people who hear Your Word and do it, not just to have knowledge stored up in our heads, but have that wisdom that flows forth into true justice and true righteousness, true love for others. May we be such a people, Lord, who wisely invest in those things that cannot fail and not that which will surely pass away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin in this passage, what we see is that what prompts Jesus to preach this sermon is a man's request, which at first blush seems like a rather reasonable request. Someone in the crowd tells, says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And in that day and age, if a man did not have a will when he passed away, All his possessions would pass into the hands of his eldest son, and then that son would be responsible to divide that inheritance appropriately according to the traditions and according to the purposes of, uh, according to what was common in those days. It would be normal, perhaps, to expect that the eldest son would keep a greater portion, but it would also be normal to expect that he would give some of that inheritance to his brothers. And so what appears to happen here is that a Man has received this inheritance, and his brother does not feel like he has been treated justly. He does not feel like his brother has given him what he is due, whether he's withheld all of the inheritance or only some of it. This man seeks for Jesus to be an arbitrator in their dispute. But Jesus responds in a striking way, saying, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, who appointed me to be the one to divide your inheritance? This man has come to Jesus with what seems at first to be a reasonable request. 
But it was a silly request, in fact. It was a foolish request to bring to Jesus because he's failed to understand what Jesus has come to do. And so Jesus is going to instruct this man and the crowds who are there to hear it by reframing their perspectives in life by challenging them to operate under a different perspective in terms of what they value and what they seek from this life. And so he begins by warning them. He begins with a warning against covetous, saying, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? The main reason is this. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not what you have. This man has failed to understand that. He thinks his life is all about what he can have. And so he is keen, he is eager, he is anxious to try and make sure that he gets all that is due him. He is overwhelmed by covetous, by that inordinate desire, that excessive desire for things that are not his. He needs to understand that his life is not equivalent to those things which he might have. So Jesus makes this point by showing him a picture of a fool. He tells this parable that you can see beginning there in verse 16 about a rich man whose land produced a bumper crop. He had a windfall in his business, if you will. And that man had a problem then because he did not have all of the storehouses, all of the barns to store these crops. Now, From a human perspective, from a worldly perspective, this man acts actually in a wise way. What am I going to do about this bumper crop that I've just taken in? How am I going to deal with this problem that is set before me? The rich fool reasons that he will tear down his barns and he will build bigger ones. But we need to take the whole picture in view in order to understand this man's foolishness. It's not that any person who goes out in their business dealings and makes shrewd and wise decisions in order to deal with the uh, ups and downs of economic realities of life is somehow foolish. But we need to see the whole picture, the way that this man reacts to all of these things. In fact, he becomes a tragically comic picture of complete and total foolishness. We should laugh. We should chuckle a little bit as we read about this man talking to himself and saying what he will say to his soul on that day when he has completed this task. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then we see what's in his heart and what motivates him to respond to this windfall in this way. In verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Uh, it's, It's like he could say, if I rendered that literally, you have many goods, many good things laid up for years many, right? Many years, many goods, I'm set. I'm all good. I I have nothing to worry about now. I'm taken care of. And so what does he decide to do? Well, now I'll relax. I'll stop working. I'll eat. I'll drink. And I'll be merry. That's what I'll say to myself in that day. He's a classic example of one who counts his chickens before they've hatched. Classic example of one who does not think about all of the other challenges that might come his way and is frankly concerned only about himself with respect primarily to the abundance of his possessions. He is a fool because he sees his life as equivalent to what he has. And God calls him out on it. He says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
Here that word could be rendered life, and we'll see it rendered life later in this passage. It's not the same word as we see earlier when Jesus says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, but it is synonymous. And here, this word, soul or life, it, 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 what God is saying is it's required of you. In other words, you're, gonna, you're about to find out. You're about to find out that you did not understand what your life consisted of. Your life is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? They're not going to be yours. You've stored up provisions for the future, but you're not actually going to come into the possession of those things. He's a foolish man. And this is what anyone who lays up treasure for himself on earth without being rich toward God is like. Anyone who devotes his whole, his total purpose in life to the acquisition of wealth with no other concerns, with no desire to love others, with no desire to benefit others, to be rich toward God, that person is a fool. But our world wouldn't say this. Our world would say that that person is wise. Imagine a picture that is more likely in the 21st century. A young man graduates college at the age of 22, and he is diligent in working for about 20 years. He invests all his money very wisely, and he's very thrifty, spends little, invests much. And so by the time 20 years have come to pass at the age of 42, this man is a multimillionaire simply by being industrious and thrifty. But he's done this with a purpose in mind. He wants to retire early and spend the remaining 30, 40 years of his life, which he's banking on, which he's assumed will happen, doing nothing but traveling the world and enjoying an early retirement, collecting seashells on the beach perhaps, or something like that. We, there are people like that in our own day. There are people who inspire to that. Perhaps you even have looked back on your life and reflected and said, if I only had been a better investor 20 years earlier, I could have re retired, retired 20 years sooner, and I could spend all my days simply satisfying my own desires, relaxing eating, and drinking, and being merry. Whether you have that or you don't have that, we can all fall into that trap, into that foolishness of desiring that above all other things. And yet it is foolishness, and this parable helps us to see how foolish it is by seeing how comically tragic this rich man is. He lays up treasure for himself, but he's not rich toward God. We need to be on guard against that kind of attitude, against that kind of covetousness. We need to understand that that's not what our life consists of. Instead, we need to see what Jesus goes on to tell the disciples. When he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, and nor about your body, what you will put on. Why? For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. It's not even that it is, uh, he says earlier, that life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now here, using that word that we see as soul later on, he says, your soul is more than these things. It's not just food, and, and the body's not just clothing, or, or your life is not just clothing for your body, that is, to say. It's more than that, and we need to see that. And how can we see that? Well, Jesus gives us illustrations that will show us how we can know that that's not what our soul, our life, our existence is all about. Consider the ravens, we're told. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. And we see the ravens then in contrast with this rich fool who built up his barns and gathered in all of his crops. And now we see the ravens who do none of those things. And yet day by day, the Lord feeds them. They have what they need. They live. And they're fed. 
And now consider this fact. You're worth more than birds. God values you so much more than birds. Will He not likewise give you what you need for the day? When you pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Can you not trust the Lord to give you your daily bread? You absolutely can. He feeds the birds. He will surely feed you, for you are more valuable than them. We also need to see that our anxiety about life, our worries, our fears, accomplish nothing. Which of you, by being anxious, Jesus says, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's a very vivid illustration here, if I were to give that to you literally. He conceives of your life like a measuring stick. Your life is this fixed measurement. And it's as if to say, which of you, through your worries, through your anxiety, can add an inch, a span, a little bit of space, a little bit of measure to that measuring stick? You can't. It's fixed. And that's just a little thing from God's perspective. It's no big deal. God gave Hezekiah, when he prayed, 15 more years of life. No big deal for God. A very easy thing to do. But you can't do that just by worrying. Your anxieties will not make your life longer or shorter. You can't add a single hour to your span of life in that way. If you're not able then to do such a small thing as that, why be anxious about all of the other things that are great and difficult for anyone except for God? No, trust the Lord who is good and will provide. You know of a certainty that if He provides for birds, He will provide you the food you need. And as we're about to see, as Jesus calls us to consider, to think about flowers, the lilies, and how they grow, we can see that He will provide for us that, that which we need for our clothing as well. Consider the lilies, how they grow, he says in verse 27. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And as I read this, I thought about earlier this week how I drove up Red Arrow Highway and I was looking at all the fall foliage and just remarked about to myself how I can't understand how anyone in this country would want to live anywhere but Michigan in October. What a beautiful place. Solomon was never arrayed like this state in October. Of course, those leaves will fall and the snow will come, and I'm sure that figures into people's calculations too. But nevertheless, it was absolutely beautiful. Or you think of a, a, a field of wild flowers and how beautiful it is, and yet, what are those flowers? It's like clothing for the grass, and that grass will grow dry, and in that context, they'd take it and they'd start a fire with it. Today it grows and it's beautiful, tomorrow it's in the oven. That's how much the grass is worth. It's kindling. It's something to start a fire with, even as it's beautifully clothed. But God clothes it, and you're worth more than grass. You're worth more than a field of flowers. He will surely clothe you as well. So don't worry yourself. Don't kill yourself toiling for that which you cannot keep. It's not saying don't work hard in your life. But as we know from the Psalms, the Lord gives to His beloved sleep. And unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. You don't need to worry about this life, about what you'll eat and what you'll wear. It doesn't mean that God will bless you in such a way where you will be among the richest in your community. It means that you can go about just like the birds and the flowers, 
knowing that day by day, as long as God has appointed for you to be on this earth, He will clothe you and He will feed you. You can bank on that. You can be sure of that. Now, if you're not sure of that, if you have moments in your life where you say, I don't know if I'm going to eat today, know this, that it's God's good pleasure to feed His people through His people. If that describes you, put your brothers and sisters in Christ to that test. I don't mean in a cruel way. But let us help you. There are people who have an abundance and it would be their great joy to help you in those needs. Let them. Let them love you in that way. What Jesus says to this crowd, oh, you of little faith. He wants them not to be people of little faith, but to be people of great faith. And so he wants them not to be people who seek what they are to eat and what they are to drink, nor to be worried doesn't mean that don't go to the store and, and, and buy your groceries, but don't spend all your life pursuing food and clothing and shelter and all of those necessities of life. That's what the nations do. What does our nation do? What does it seek? The same thing that every individual seeks, bread, food, just more of it and more and more and more of it. That's what every nation on earth seeks. But there is a kingdom that is not of earth, a kingdom that is of heaven where we can trust that we don't need to seek that because the ruler of it all will freely dispense those things to us as we have need. So Jesus is saying we can be freed from those worries and seek first the kingdom and know that all of those things will be added to us. Not in such fullness that we will be rich, as I've said, but in the completeness that we need to live this life faithfully as He's called us. So seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Don't be fearful. And here again, He, he addresses them as not li- oh, those of little faith, but now a little flock. He addresses them as their shepherd, do you see? As the one who will shepherd this little flock. And He wants them to know that just as a good shepherd cares for the flock, as you see in Psalm 23, guiding them to streams of living water, laying them down in green pastures, so also our Lord will guide us as His little flock, knowing that it is our Father's good pleasure to what? To give you the kingdom. That's His good pleasure, to give you the kingdom. Now, we want our little kingdoms on earth, and God is offering us a heritage, an inheritance in a kingdom that will never fail. And what Jesus is going to say next is going to be difficult to hear. We need to apply it well. Because I don't think that we're to understand that we are to go from this place this very day and put all of our homes and cars on the market. But what he's saying in verse 33 is, go all in for this. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. In other words, that, think about the rich fool. He put all that he had into bigger barns. He put all his hope in the things of this life. And Jesus is giving us the complete opposite contrast. Go all in for the kingdom. If you're going to sell all that you have, as some people will do, and then invest it in an investment where they think this thing is sure to go to the moon. It's sure to double and triple in a year's time. So I'm putting all that I have in that investment. Some people do. Jesus says, I have an investment that you can really be sure about. Not one that you just think will go to the moon, one that will surely never fail. It's called the kingdom of God. 
Invest everything in that. How do you do that? You can't buy a place in it, a seat in it. But you can use the resources that God has given you to love others, to further the kingdom, to promote the gospel. We're going to think about some practical ways we can do that by looking at the early church in short order. But just know this, what Jesus is saying is go all in on the kingdom. Thieves cannot steal from the kingdom. Moths don't destroy in the kingdom. And more than that, if you do that, then your treasure is there. And that will be your guard against covetousness. That will be your guard against fear and anxiety. Because just as a person who invests all that he has in some security, some stock, or some investment that he's fully convinced on, becomes totally infatuated with that. A person who goes all in for the gospel, for the kingdom, for the purposes of God, his heart will be there. His hopes will be there. His affections, his loves will be set upon that kingdom. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So go all in for that which cannot fail. How can we do that? We can start by staying ready. Jesus will say, stay dressed for action. And Here he uses the same language, very similar language that is, to what we would find in Exodus 12. When God told the people to be ready to go out of Egypt at the Passover. To have your, 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 your belt fastened around your waist is the idea. Be ready for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men in this next parable who wait for the master to come home. These servants, their master has gone to a wedding feast and they're waiting, they're ready to open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Jesus gives us a beatitude to show us what these servants are like. A surprising beatitude because we wouldn't normally think of slaves as blessed. But he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And in a stunning turn of events, why are they blessed in this parable? Because the master will come and be their servant when he comes and finds them wakeful. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them if he comes in the second watch, if he comes in the third watch, in other words, you don't know when he's going to come. But when he comes, if he finds you wakeful, blessed are you. You're all in for the coming of Christ. So that's what he's talking about. He says, know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's been constant teaching in the early church and the New Testament that when Christ comes, He will come like a thief in the night, not in every way like a thief, but in the unexpectedness of a thief. A thief does not send you a letter in the mail and say, I'm about this night to invade your house. Neither has the Lord told us exactly when He's going to come, but He's told us that He will come and to be ready. We're to be ready and watchful. And if we are, We are blessed, for we will be brought into that our place in the kingdom, which is signified here as one where we are invited to recline at table as He serves us. It's an extraordinary picture, an extraordinary offer of joy for those who wait with faithful expectation as servants waiting for their Master, for the coming of Christ, the coming of the Son of Man. That's how you go all in for the kingdom. You stay ready. You have a sense of urgency, as my football coach used to say. 
You walk with a sense of purpose, he would say. And so you're not complacent, but you're ready for your salvation. Now Jesus is going to show us even more clearly how to practically understand what watchfulness looks like in this age. As Peter raises a question, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Here we have the ultimate contrast in this sermon. We had the foolish rich man at the beginning, and now we have the faithful and wise servant. And this is one who the master, look at this, sets over his household for what purpose? To give them their portion of food at the proper time. He sets them over his household to serve the members of his household. What does that sound like to you if not the church and the gifts that God has given to his servants so that we might serve and love one another? Not just elders, not just deacons, but everyone so gifted by God in particular ways so that they might at particular times serve the needs of God's household. That's the faithful and wise manager, the one who does those things at the proper time, the one who uses those gifts and those abilities. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Of course, this has a, 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 a particularly strong application to those who are called to lead in the church as elders, pastors, as, or as deacons in the service of the church. We see a particularly striking warning that follows in verse 44 of the person who is not faithful, the person who is a fool, who has been set over the Lord's household. He won't ultimately be set over all his possessions, as he promises that blessed and faithful servant. Rather, this person is one who says, my master's delayed. He's delayed in coming. And so what does he do? He beats the other servants, and he eats and drinks and gets drunk. Now, think about this. Throughout this sermon, what we've seen is an emphasis on two things, serving others, serving the needs of others, and forgetting about one's own needs, on the one hand, and in contrast, one who is concerned primarily and solely about food and drink and possessions. And here is that ultimate picture of one who's just like the rich fool, but in the context of God's people, in the context of God's household. What does he do? He abuses other servants, he doesn't serve their needs, and he focuses on his own desires in terms of food and drink so that he even gets drunk. Now, what would that look like in a church? A pastor who mistreats his people, focuses on his own needs, deacons who embezzle money, certainly doesn't happen here, I'm not suggesting anything like that, but you can see that in reports about churches across our land, those kinds of things, where people mistreat others, they use and abuse their position to take advantage of others. And it can go all the way down the line. But there's especially a striking warning for the disciples and for any who would serve as a leader among God's people. We ought not to be like that fool who says, my master is delayed in coming, so I have a free license to take advantage of my position. For if our Lord will come like a thief in the night, he will surely come like a thief in the night for that fool. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. Like when the boss walks into the room at work 
when you're playing video games on the computer. You weren't expecting him, and you try to get off that screen as quickly as possible. The master will come at a time when you don't expect, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. What a horrific warning. What a terrible warning for any who would be called to be a servant among God's people. And that one particularly who knew the master's will will get a severe beating, he says. The one who does not know and did what deserved a beating will also receive a beating, but a light one. God in His justice will deal rightly with everyone in perfect measure. This is one example of where we see how God's justice will be so perfect that everyone will get exactly what he deserves unless he is found in Christ on that day and his debt is paid by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a severe warning. We should be watchful for this kind of attitude in ourselves that would seek to take advantage of the position to which we're called, of the service that we're called to render, and to use it in an abusive and selfish way. For Christ is coming, that is certain, and there will be a judgment. To the one whom, to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And the disciples needed to learn this. We also need to learn it. Now as Jesus has taught us and taught his disciples that they are not to worry, that they're not to be covetous, and they're not to be fearful, nor to be so self-serving and, and complacent that they're failing to look for His coming, He now reminds them of those certain realities concerning His first and second coming. And he does so in somewhat enigmatic terms. Look at verse 49 as He describes what He came to do. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here we're reminded of what John the Baptist said when he spoke of the Christ as one who would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We understand fire as correlating, as corresponding to divine judgment. Jesus came for judgment. And he says, would that it were already kindled. Would that it had already begun. But first, something else must happen. He also came to undergo a baptism of his own. And here he speaks about him going to the cross, about what he must go and do. See, you think of baptism and you think of being deluged with water. You think of all of those ways in which God's judgment was poured out through water in times of old, in the time of Noah, which is correlated to a baptism by the Apostle Peter. Or in the, the time when Israel went through the Red Sea, which is also related to a baptism by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. And here Jesus says of himself, I also have a baptism to undergo. But he's speaking about the cross in line with what Isaiah said, where he presented the suffering of the servant of the Lord as a baptism like the crossing of the Red Sea. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus came to go to the cross so that he might bear our judgment. But if we will not receive that judgment, 
then we will bear our judgment in a baptism that is fiery, a baptism of fire that He will bring on the day of His return. These are two certain realities that should frame our life as Christians and the way that we relate to the resources that God has given us. And the they should also give us a sense of urgency about this life. We should also derive a sense of urgency from the way in which he describes the character of this life as one of division. Just as he came to cast fire on the earth, speaking of that future day of judgment, and he came to be baptized, speaking about that past day when he bore the judgment of Almighty God, in the space between, we see division. As people believe in Christ or people reject him, that Division will divide even families, the closest of relationships in that context and in many ways in our own as well. He says, I have come not to give peace on the earth, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and likewise mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law. It's a sad reality, but one that I know that many of us know in this life. Many of us know the sadness of this reality, and yet it is true. Because in calling us into the kingdom, Christ calls us into a new family, but not everyone will receive that call. And it creates a new order, a new division, one where the, 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 the categories that define who we are and to whom we belong are no longer primarily about who is your mom or who is your dad or who is your brother or who is your sister, but now about who is your brother and sister in Christ. It's the reality of life in this age. And it gives us a sense of urgency as we see it as part of the signs that Jesus speaks about when He talks about interpreting the, t the time. How He chastises the crowds and he says you, you know how to interpret clouds rising and see that there's going to be rain you know how to interpret a south wind and see that there's going to be scorching heat but look around you you see the division that is happening you see the signs that the Christ is doing as we reflect on earlier chapters in this gospel you see the mighty deeds that he's doing you see the proclamation that has come from John the Baptist you hear these things you see these things why do you not know how to interpret the present time and the implication is, why don't you see the urgency of the situation? Why don't you come to me and change the whole framework by which you evaluate your situation in life? That man who prompted this whole sermon from the very beginning came to Jesus hoping that Jesus might give him a greater share in his father's possessions. Possessions which will surely pass away. And Jesus has challenged him and challenges us to see none of that really matters. That's not what he came to offer us. He came to offer us something much better, something much greater, something much more. But it'll come through trial. It'll come through difficulty. It'll come through times of division. And yet, all of those things will be nothing compared to the judgment that he will bring on that day upon those who are not found in him. The way to go all in ultimately then for the kingdom is to declare your total, complete allegiance in Christ Jesus through faith in Him by trusting that His sacrifice on the cross, the baptism He underwent, 
is indeed sufficient to pay your debt, to purchase your place in the kingdom of God, and that through faith in Him, you are counted as righteous before God, not because you are righteous in and of yourself, but because of the righteousness that God credits to you through faith in Christ. You want to go all in for the kingdom. That is where it starts. It doesn't stop there. It goes on from there as we seek to love one another and devote all of ourselves to the furtherance of the kingdom and to serving the needs of those who are around us. Let us be people who interpret the time. Let us be people like this last picture, of one going to the judge who is able to settle with his accuser, seeing that at the end of the day this dispute is nothing. This dispute is no big deal. That he will be willing to be defrauded. He will be willing not to get everything that he might hope to get in order to avoid going before the judge and coming under that justice that that judge would demand and being found guilty and then thrown into prison in a place where there's no grace, in a place where he's required to pay his debt to the very last penny. That's the picture ultimately of the fool. Let us not be like that kind of person. Let us be one who sees things as they are with respect to these certain realities of Christ's first coming and His second coming and the certain reality of God's goodness and God's provision for us in our life. Let's conclude then by thinking about what would that look like in the context of a church. Here I ask you to turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, to a text from which we read earlier. And we'll read another one from this passage. Peter, excuse me, Paul, as he writes to Tim, Timothy, seems to call to mind these very words that Jesus taught his disciples. As he teaches Timothy what to teach those in this early church that Timothy is called to shepherd, these churches that he's called to lead. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, looking at the passage we read together beginning in verse 6, Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice what he says there. It's not money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not a question of whether you have it or whether you don't have it. It's whether you love it and you crave it. And what will that do? It will lead to destruction. It will lead to your ruin. It will lead you away from the faith, Paul says, to ruin. If going all in for the kingdom is what we ought to do, and we begin that life through faith in Christ, going all in for the love of money will destroy that faith in a moment. So beware of that, just as Jesus taught us. Beware of all covetousness. And don't worry yourself, but be content with what God gives you day by day. He says the self-same thing that Jesus himself taught his disciples in Luke chapter 12. But he goes on from there, and I want you to see this as well in verse 17 of the same chapter. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Again, you see Paul saying the very same thing Jesus taught in Luke 12. And as he teaches the rich in the church, for there were those in the church who had means, who had wealth, he doesn't tell them, just go and divest yourself of all that and become poor. As if being poor was the end that credited us. As if being poor was the way to be holy. No, he says, take your resources and how do they in their context sell all that they have and give it to the poor? Not by ceasing to own the homes that they might have, but by using those resources for the benefit of the others. And we see that very thing in the early church. People who had homes hosted congregations in their homes. They became the owner of the church building and made it available to others who would come to gather regularly. They were the ones who were showing hospitality as missionaries came through and needed a place to stay. They were the ones who John, for instance, in 2 John and 3 John could write to and tell them how to use their resources for the benefit of others. And they were the ones who, when it came to suffering loss for the sake of Christ, would suffer loss that could be measured in great sums of money, and yet did that faithfully, always trusting their Lord. Those who wisely used the resources God had given them used those resources in those ways. Paul doesn't say that you need to become poor in worldly terms. What he says is use what God has given you as a resource that God has given you for loving others, for furthering the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, and so store up treasure in heaven. If I told you that you could take all of your assets this very moment, and you could suddenly transfer that into shares, stock ownership in the kingdom of God, would you not take all that you had and sell it in a moment and make that transfer? How do we do that? According to our Lord, according to our apostles. We do that by living with contentment, by avoiding the love of money, and by being rich in good works for the sake of the kingdom. So let us be that kind of people who regard everything that we have as something we've been given and an opportunity for us to be faithful and wise servants in this age as we wait for the certain coming of our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a hard thing for all of us to do, to hear these words and put them into practice. And yet you call us to do these things with promises and with warnings that show us the way of wisdom. And now we pray, O oh Lord, that you would make us to walk the way of wisdom. Help us to see that our life, our worth, is not in what we own, as we sing these words even, but rather our worth, our value, our life is in our place in heaven because of what you've done for us in sending your Son to die for us. Help us to be such a people, O Lord, that are always giving, always loving, not in order to merit some favor of yours, but because of the great love with which you've loved us, because of our trust that you will provide for all our needs. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.